Audi. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Thanks so much for all the comments and the podcast love. I'm loving too the reviews on iTunes, so please keep them coming. If you haven't already done so, please also subscribe. It's absolutely free and you'll get the podcast sent to you every Tuesday. Now, on the 16th of May 2017, at 4.45am, in temperatures of minus 35 degrees centigrade, Molly Hughes reached the summit of Mount Everest. Aged just 26, this was her second time at the peak of Everest. She became the youngest woman in the world and the first English woman to successfully summit both the north and south sides of the world's highest mountain. Molly's seen the world in ways most of us can only dream of and she has a brilliant tale to tell of her life so far in travel. think we should start on top of the world how does it feel when you're standing on top of the world yeah. it's incredible it's absolutely incredible you can see the whole of the himalayas the whole of nepal and tibet's brought out beneath you but it's not exactly how you know how in songs it's always like talking about this euphoric moment of being on top of the world but it's not like that you're like so physically and mentally exhausted from the journey up there and the lack of oxygen just takes everything from you so it's definitely not a euphoric moment but it's uh, an amazing one and one I'll always remember, but you feel that kind of euphoria a little bit more when you're down and you're safe and you're off the mountain. Were you scared at any point? Every day. Yeah, yeah. Almost every minute of every day, probably. What's the most terrifying thing? For me, it's probably heights. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge fan of heights. You've gone into the wrong business. Yeah, definitely gone the wrong path. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, it's okay. Like, I mean, well, on Everest, there's obviously lots of heights. So one of the worst things on Everest are the crevasses. So on the south side, in the Cumbi Weissfall, you've got these huge, like, gaping crevasses, maybe like three, four, five metres wide and 50 metres deep, and you just cross them on, like, ladders, like normal ladders that you have in your shed at home, strung together. They're pretty horrible and pretty scary for someone that has the fear <laughs> of heights. And also you must be carrying a lot of equipment, have thick gloves on, yeah, exactly. so crawling across a ladder. Yeah, yeah. How deep is it below in uh, the crevasse? Well, down to, I don't know, 50 metres. They look pretty much bottomless where we are I mean there's a safety line that runs across it well, when I was on that side of the mountain in 2012 there was one particularly bad one and yeah I guess it is dangerous because one chap did unfortunately die in one of them the Sherpa so one of these local Nepalese guides these incredible people and he he was I don't know if he was like in a rush to get down because he was coming back from camp one back to base camp crossing one of these ladders and for some reason he didn't clip into the safety line I guess he was in a rush or maybe he got a bit like 
like complacent because he'd done it so often. But he slipped on the ladder and, and fell all the way to the bottom of the crevasse. He he died on on that fall, unfortunately. So it is dangerous, but it's all about taking it slowly and and not being kind of overwhelmed by that fear that you feel. In your film, beyond the highest peak that you made from your last uh, visit, your 2017 climb of Everest, you yeah. describe finding a body on the path. Yeah, so that's on on the north side from last year, and on the final summit day, like way up above 8,000 meters, so way up in the death zone. Yeah, I saw I saw a few bodies last year, and one particularly bad one, or particularly close it was very close to where we were climbing up and you could see all of him and he was kind of dressed just like we were same kind of high altitude suit the same boots he looked just like one of our team members but he was obviously not alive anymore and he was frozen so yeah it was, it was pretty harrowing what has happened to people what and what is the death zone i've never heard of that so the death zone is kind of a phrase i guess used by climbers and yeah, people to describe the area above eight thousand meters so Everest is 8,848 metres. So that final, like, almost 850 metres, you're climbing in this area where, like, human life or any life can't really survive for long. Yeah, your body's kind of dying on itself when you're up there because there's, like, a third less oxygen than there is down here at sea level. So it's kind of somewhere you want to spend as, like, as little time as possible. But saying that, you have to spend a long time up there. The first time on the south side, maybe 18 or 20 hours up there. And then this year... I don't know, it must have been a good 14 or 15. So it's somewhere you've got to be in your body. You can just feel it just zapping everything from your body up there. How many days does it take? The whole Everest expedition from either the north or the south side takes two months. And up up on the route, there's, well, on the south side, there's four camps before the summit. And the north side, there's three on the way up. Well, four main ones. And we kind of spend a lot of time kind of yo-yoing up and down the mountain during those two months. So we'll kind of go from base camp at the bottom, which is reasonably comfy, up to camp one back down you rest and recover you then go up to camp two down again you rest and recover i don't understand why you're coming back down that just seems (laughs) counterintuitive to me yeah just retracing your steps the whole time all it's all about the uh, altitude because there's such a oxygen up there we slowly let our bodies acclimatize and after like five or six weeks yeah we get much better at altitude and that's when you can kind of start to think about going all the way to the top because at first when you first start this that first trip up to camp one you're just suffering every step and you're just thinking there's no way I'm ever going to make it all the way up there but doing these like rotations on the mountain slowly gets you acclimatised What motivates you to put yourself through that? (laughs) Lots of things I think I mean I'm obviously talking a lot about the suffering part of it and the, the danger but that's kind of a very small part of it to me and what it's all about is well a few things it's definitely about the achievement but it's also about the experience of, of being in these incredible places. The Himalayas, and especially when you get up high in the Himalayas, is just the most breathtaking place. you just got, like, huge white peak mountains surrounding you, incredible sunsets, incredible sunrises. The stars at night are just, like, nothing you've ever seen before. Yeah, it's the most inspiring place in the world. And when you can get all the way up to the top of it and, and look down on this huge mountain range, yeah, that's what really motivates me. Who are you with? Who are your uh, companions on these trips? So last year on the north side, I had a really great team. There was just four of us. So it was myself and my friend called John Gupta, who is a mountain guide. And I was kind of saying my plans to go to Everest, north side, and just asked if he would be interested in coming in and kind of guiding the expedition. And he was yeah, really keen. And then we had two local Nepalese guides with us. One of them was a chap I hadn't met before called Leela, who was brilliant. And then the other guy was Lakpa Andrew Sherpa who is a really good friend of mine and he's the guy that I summited with on the south side back in 2012. Actually I've climbed all of my kind of big peaks in the Himalayas with, with Lapa. So me and John shared a tent most of the way up and yeah he's a he's a fun guy. He had some some good banter which kept it <laughs> 
kept it fresh. <laughs> on, on a practical sense, what are you eating? How did you have to carry everything with um, you? Yeah, so like a base camp is okay. Like as I said, it's a little bit more comfy down there. So like reasonable meals. But like on the way up, it's just like freeze-dried meals. So like army ration pack type things. You're pouring water into it. As we're heading up on our summit attempt this year, we were like packing all our food bags. And like by the time we got up there, I kind of realised that we'd really packed with these like packets of chicken tikka curry. So like the last like four days, all we had to eat were these horrible chicken tikka curry. And it's the last thing you want to eat when you're up at 8,000 metres. You must really need your energy though. You must really yeah. have to take that into account. How do you train before the two months? Just as much as possible. Like being as fit as possible is important. I live up in Scotland, so it's quite easy to get out into the, the mountains and make training like, quite specific. But then also like gym stuff, it all helps definitely. And also, yeah, I think maybe being a little bit heavier when you go into these kind of trips, any kind of big mountain trips or polar trips, because you're you kind of burn like almost 10,000 calories a day out there so it's impossible to eat all of that so you're definitely relying on your muscle and fat reserves quite a lot do you come back very thin and yeah I think I lost tired looking. five kilograms last year on it in two months it's yeah. a long time to be away from your friends and family and day to day life though definitely is but I think it's harder for them a lot harder for them than it is for me has anyone ever said to you I don't want you to go never no which is is really good I'm sure they've all thought it parents and yeah everyone but it's good that they don't say that what is the difference between the north side and the south side of everest yeah. so the south side you climb up from nepal it's definitely the more popular route but the north side is from tibet and that's the original route that british teams were trying to climb in the 1920s but it was finally summited later than the south side um, and the north side is cold and windier a bit more technical the climbing it's a bit harder much more rock to climb and you spend more time up in the death zone, that nice place that we talked about. So yeah, the north side that I did last year was definitely more challenging, but incredible, really incredible. And how did you get into it? So where did you grow up? I grew up in Devon, right in the south coast, like as far from mountains as you get really in the UK. And we did like lots of outdoorsy stuff growing up, did some hiking and surfing and stuff. But then kind of mountains kind of came into my life when I was 17. And I went on this expedition to Kenya and we kind of I explored a bit, did some charity work, and then had the chance to climb Mount Kenya, which is amazing. It was kind of like four or five days of just like walking uphill, uh, a reasonable altitude, and then like getting to the top. The clouds were all swelling around me. Like, yeah, I was hooked from that moment. So I just kept kind of going throughout the rest of school and uni, saving up as much money as I could and, and heading off on, on trips around the world, climbing in different mountain ranges. After Kenya, I went off to the Himalayas in India for the first time, which, yeah, was incredible. The scale of it definitely blew my mind as an 18-year-old. Then the following year, I started uni and kind of spent a lot of my student loan that next summer on getting off to the Andes. We were climbing there, and then also we went to North Africa, the Atlas Mountains that year. And then the year after, we went to back to East Africa, and then like close to home in the Alps and in Scotland, just as much as I could. And do you go on normal holidays as well? I mean, can I find you <laughs> flat out on the beach in Costa del Sol? Not for very long. Like, I can handle, like, lying on a beach for, like, a day. But much, much more than that, then, yeah, I need a bit of <laughs> a mountain or something, something to climb. So apart from Everest, where has been the most incredible place you've been in the world? Oh, good question. So many incredible places. I love Africa. I've only been, like, three times to Kenya and Tanzania and Morocco a couple of times. And it's amazing. It's just so different to life here. And I remember the first time I went when I was 17. Yeah, it definitely just blew my mind just this completely different culture all these amazing people that just seem to just yeah be so excited about life <laughs> it's so different but yeah so great you're going to some unusual places and people 
don't tend to go on holiday. Have you ever felt threatened in any way in these um, places or vulnerable? You know, a little bit. I mean, I'm usually with, you know, a group of really great people, travellers or climbers. So never that much. And I think especially the more you visit places like so like especially Nepal, because I've been there so much recently. Um, I think I've been like four times in the last four years. And the more you get to know a place, the more you realise that they're not threatening or scary. They're, they're just incredible and you've got to kind of adjust to their pace. And then as soon as you do, you realise the wonders that are there, I guess. Do you think it makes you pretty fearless? Not fearless. I'm definitely scared a lot still, travelling or climbing. But it just helps you learn to control it and take it a bit more rationally. What's the best thing about travelling? What does it do for you? A few things. I guess it makes you a lot more humble. It makes you often appreciate what you've got at home. But it also just kind of opens up your mind to different people and how they live their life and how maybe you could live your life in a different way, a better way. You're also a motivational speaker. Tell me about that. Yes, I started doing talks after my first summit of Everest in 2012. And at first it was just like small little things like my old school invite me back and the local WI group when I spoke to them. And then I just kind of built it from there. And now I do all sorts of things like loads of travelling around different schools around the country and then lots of corporate stuff as well. I'm off to Barcelona next month for my like first international gig for this big medical company, which should be really fun. But yeah, just trying to grow out as much as I can and, and share my story, but I guess in a way, because obviously Everest it seems so big and out of people's minds or, th- or thoughts of that they can achieve something, but I guess I try and make these talks or show them about my story of climbing Everest, but then how they can also achieve things in their lives. It doesn't have to be climbing, it can be anything that they've got passion for. Talk me through the process. How do you, you convert that mountaineering <laughs> yeah. experience to motivating yeah. someone who's working in computers? So I tend to kind of run my presentations around like a few key themes. One of them is like self-belief. And I talk quite a lot about the difference between like self-belief and self-confidence and how when I was younger, when I was like at school, I was like one of the shyest kids in the class. I would never like put my hand up and answer a question. And if the teacher asked me a question, I would always just like be really embarrassed. So I never had that much self-confidence. But I always had this like deep down belief that I could do something and achieve something, even if I didn't show it to other people. So I was trying to make sure people can understand that difference. Like just because you on the outside, you're not kind of overtly showing people that you can achieve. You still can have these ambitions. And then I also talk about stuff like controlling fear, like we spoke about, about perseverance, which is definitely the most important thing for <laughs> getting to the top of the world in the whole journey. And yeah, teamwork as well. Have you got any examples of how you've managed to sort of turn people around with that? You know, it's like after I visit schools, I always get nice emails or tweets from some of the students. And it's always hard to know, like once you leave a building, a school or event, like what happens the other side? and how you've had that kind of impact on people. But I had a really nice one that I got told about just before Christmas. I did this talk for this like bank in Scotland, and it was kind of open to all of their staff in this bank. And one of the, the clean ladies came. She was this Polish lady. And she came along to the talk as well because she was really interested by the poster advertising it. And like a few weeks later, she was talking to the organiser who obviously organised the whole thing with me. She told her that she'd actually like now quit her job at this bank as a cleaner and she was going to go back to Poland and go back to university to start her own business. Which is really cool because she said because she was inspired by my talk and that you can just achieve anything and that like now's the time to, to do it. It was really humbling to, to hear that side of it. Must be so nice to actually find that just your experience and relating it to people can actually yeah. make a difference to individual people's lives. Yeah, it just shows that it, even if she's the only one that I managed to motivate, I hope, I hope there's more, but, you know, it's worth it. Where in the world would you like to go that you haven't been? What's next on your list? Mm. What's your dream destination as well? I'm not sure about my dream destination. I think things just kind of come up or places to visit or mountains that I'm interested in. 
One day I'd really like to go to Antarctica. It looks like the most incredible, barren, crazy landscape. So that's appealing, yeah. is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's I'm just thinking it looks very cold. <laughs> cold's okay. I can deal with cold. <laughs> can you? Do you, um, do you not feel the cold? Not as much as most other people. <laughs> it's about having the right equipment, I guess. Yeah, and I, yeah. I don't have good equipment even for yeah, yeah. British winters. Absolutely, yeah. And it's having good good clothing for sure. And um, what would you do in Antarctica? Because it, it's not about climbing there, I'm assuming. It's uh, about yeah, trekking. I mean, there are some cool mountains, but yeah, or it's like about skiing. Obviously, you can ski to the South Pole, which would be interesting. Well, yeah, there's some cool mountains to, to have a look at as well. When you go on holiday yeah. or in a trip, is it always about mountain climbing or doing something adventurous? Um, it's always some kind of adventurous theme to it, but not always about mountains. I've actually, well, I've just booked one for March. And I'm going to Jordan with two other like adventure girls. These are really cool, cool girls. Um, and we're doing this like desert crossing, which is going to be completely out of my comfort zone. It's we're hot. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> hot. <laughs> it's going to be like what we're trying to do about 275 kilometers, just like self-supported, so carrying everything ourselves. It's going to be interesting. I think it's one of those things I just kind of joined on a whim and thought that sounds like fun. <laughs> and then when I get there and it's like 40 degrees, <laughs> you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> How will you make sure you're safe? Have you got a back? Plan. Um, a little bit. I mean, like, the whole idea of this trip is, I think, to show that people can go off and travel around these places, and especially women on their own. And it is all really accessible. And it's a beautiful country, and it's a shame to not want to go to somewhere like that for any kind of, you know, media headlines or, or whatever. In terms of a backup plan, yeah, we'll have safety get-outs. We'll have a good GPS and communication with people. There was that man that was lost recently in the jungle somewhere mm, for several days, yeah. and it was all over the news. And I don't think you took anything with him, which is a little bit selfish. Right? Yeah, you know, a little bit. I mean, you know, mountaineering and this kind of exploration is generally quite selfish. Like the only person that really benefits from it is the person that's there, seeing these things and these incredible things, which is a bit of a shame, but I think it's probably something that I've come to accept in a way. And I guess I try and offset it by coming back and talking to as many kids as I can and trying to inspire them a little bit. Do you have any interest in, say, something that might go hand in hand, like conservation when you're travelling? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I try, I think like one of my main interests is, is people. So I always try and, if I've got a big trip, try and raise money for a different charity. Last year on Everest, I raised money for cancer research and we raised quite, I think we raised like 13,500 in the end, which was really great. And then... The first ever trip where I was made for Action Aid. So yeah, I quite like people charity. You know, I love animals. I love the planet. But there's just something about people when they need need help. How do you finance these trips? It's the hardest thing. Yeah, absolutely. So climbing Everest on either route, the north or the south, can cost anywhere between like thirty and eighty thousand pounds per person. Huge amounts of money. So I always have to try and get corporate sponsorship. So I want to get big companies on board to give me the funding in return for for anything, really, for marketing, PR opportunities, going in and doing talks with them, their customers. It's definitely harder than climbing the mountain itself, raising that amount of money. Like, when I was trying to raise it all for 2017, it took about three years. You're just constantly getting rejected from companies, constantly, like, hitting dead ends. But, yeah, in the end, we got it. You were only 21 the first time you climbed yeah. Everest. You're the youngest woman in the world to climb it from both sides, yeah. north and south. And you... What else are you? <laughs> what <laughs> there else was something else. I'm <laughs> also the, the first English woman to do it from both sides. At 21, climbing Everest. How old are people that go up there? Yeah. Are there other 21-year-olds that are doing Yeah, this? there are. There are, absolutely. Not, not many, but there are a few. Like, when I was on it, there was a, a team of... There was, like, another 21-year-old, another 22-year-old. 
So when I was on it the first time, yeah, there was a group of, of youngish people, um, which was really nice because we were all kind of similar backgrounds and similar ambitions. You know, I think due to the, the cost of it and all the training and experience that's needed, obviously it kind of is more of a thing that's commonly done by a slightly older people, usually men. Um, but yeah, it's nice when you get young people going for it as well. Do the the old school men that encounter you up the mountain, yeah. are they quite surprised by your um, presence? <laughs> I don't think so, not these days. It's definitely like, as a woman, you're definitely in the minority on these mountain mountain trips. And at base camp last year, there were hardly any women at base camp, which is, is interesting. But like, it's, you know, it's fine. You can, I can work with men very easily. They can get on and, and you know, you're there to, to climb it and get the job done. Is it one of these things with women that actually women aren't as good at climbing as men because of sheer issues with physical strength um no <laughs> no definitely not women can get as strong as men if they want by training and also at altitude things kind of even out a little bit and i think sometimes women seem to cope a little bit better than men in climbing these mountains these big mountains is so many things are kind of balanced to either success or fail so it is to do with how physically strong you are how much training you've done um, it's all to do with how well you adapt but it's also so much about the psychology of it and if you can not be overwhelmed by this huge objective and if you can break it down and if you can think really rationally and pragmatically and not focus on the top and I think it's yeah it's more about the mental side of it than it is the physical side now I first met you in a castle in Spain at the wedding of the twin sister of your partner Jess describe the <laughs> castle to me um, it's a crazy place isn't it yeah, it's, really so it's where Jess and Kate's dad has lived there for the last, I don't know how long, 10, 15 years? And it's like a 13th century castle on a hilltop above the Costa del Sol. It's beautiful. It's kind of, there's a hotel there, but it's not like a touristy destination much. There's just these like, I think there's 15 residents or something that live there permanently. And most of them are like old German hippies with like three teeth. Um <laughs> And then a few little restaurants, and it's just, yeah, a beautiful and different world. <laughs> Is that where you go for, to relax? Where do you go for fun? Um, yeah, we go to Spain quite a lot. We go and see Jess's dad, mainly for the, the beer and the food and the sunshine. But for fun, I don't know, I like I enjoy climbing as fun for me. So going up into the mountains of Scotland, I would much rather do that than, I don't know, go shopping for the day. I don't know what normal girls do <laughs> for fun, but... Yeah, I'd much rather go off and spend the weekend, yeah, in the hills than going on nights out or whatever. You live in Edinburgh, so does that give you a lot of opportunities to go out into the mountains yeah, and the highlands, I guess? Yeah. yeah, that's kind of one of the main reasons why I live there. I'm so close to these incredible mountains. Scotland has some, some beautiful and challenging mountains, these incredible coastlines. It's all accessible, but you can still be in a beautiful capital city. One of the reasons why, certainly for me and a lot of people I speak to, don't travel so much in the UK mm. is because the weather is so unpredictable. <laughs> but that obviously doesn't seem to bother you. Yeah, it's okay. Like, it's, it's hard because, like, obviously, Scotland is renowned for being wet and the weather being not so great. But when you do get these days in Scotland where the weather is perfect, it's sunny, it's warm, and there's no wind, it's the best place in the world. You probably couldn't find it no better than in Scotland. We had an amazing trip a couple of years ago to the Outer Hebrides. So I kind of spent two weeks kind of travelling up and down the length of the, the Outer Hebrides, going through all these different islands, travelling by ferry across them. And for a good, probably half the time, the weather was just completely perfect. It was really like 24 degrees and really hot. And it just looks like the Caribbean, but in Scotland. 
it's beautiful it's absolutely incredible there are there's stunning places in in the uk and wales you know the beaches in wales yeah, are just fantastic absolutely. massive expanses of white sand yeah, but yeah. stand on them and you're in a gale <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could get them on a good day for sure what's next then what's the you're going to jordan what else so are you jordan doing? and then i guess the next main thing i'm kind of focusing on is uh, i'm doing some work with a charity up in scotland called the polar academy it's a really cool charity founded like four or five years ago by this polar explorer called Craig Matteson. He's this amazing guy. He's been to the um, South Pole, the North Pole, um, all, all the poles. <laughs> um, and he basically kind of saw this kind of opportunity or this gap where in schools, this huge group of kids that kind of see themselves a little bit as invisible. So it's not like the really clever kids or the really sporty kids it's not the naughty, troubled kids that get all the attention and all the funding. It's this kind of middle group where maybe the teachers don't know their names. They just come in every day, keep their head down. Maybe they've been bullied. Maybe their home lives aren't, aren't great. And he basically goes in to, to different schools just in Scotland at the moment, but hoping to expand and identifies a group of these kids and trains them up for a year. Turns them from, yeah, really shy kids with hardly any self-confidence, super low self-esteem kids that have usually not done much sport or exercise before trains them for a year turns them into these basically elite athletes and then they go off on an expedition to greenland and they had this amazing challenging expedition in greenland so i'm becoming part of that and i'm training to be guide to, to take some of these students to greenland in 2019 which will be incredible i can't wait there's something inside you feel that you can relate to those children Absolutely. from being that child that yeah, shy yeah. child yeah definitely i mean i definitely had a much easier time than a lot of the kids that that we're working with but yeah it's definitely that atmosphere at school when you're in a big huge school and the students in the class they're getting all the attention for different random things good things and bad things but then these kids that just yeah just go in every day and never see themselves as as kids that can achieve i guess they never view themselves they will just carry on they won't think about going to university they won't think about big jobs or things that they can do in their lives yeah it's gonna be really interesting to turn turn around their their ambitions i guess i imagine something like that can really turn people's lives around yeah it does i've met like the kids that have been on these expeditions the last couple of years and they're incredible now now they can stand up in front of hundreds of people and give presentations about their experiences most of them are off to university now where they wouldn't have imagined doing it before yeah it completely changes them just by i guess empowering them and giving them this kind of sense of of self-belief tell me the difference between self-belief and self-confidence i found that really interesting yeah so self-confidence obviously that outward version of yourself is what you present to other people might give you the ability to be really good in social situations or stand up and give these big presentations talk in front of people but self-belief is is more than that it's like a deep down feeling that you can really do something and you can really achieve something in your life and self-belief it doesn't have to be like coupled with self-confidence they don't necessarily have to go hand in hand you can be self-confident but not really have that much self-belief and you can definitely have self-belief but not have that self-confidence and i think that's the really interesting one because once someone that has self-belief suddenly finds a bit of self-confidence as well you can just achieve absolutely anything and do you think travel has a way of helping people bring out that self-belief and bring out the best yeah it's all about travel and, and challenge as well and travel can be can be challenging it puts you out of your comfort zone and as soon as you step out of your comfort zone in any way going to a new country organizing trips yourself meeting people you wouldn't have met before 
it definitely challenges you and that kind of challenge and, and pushing yourself is where it all kind of starts to grow something that I ask all my guests to finish up on is about music because I okay. adore travel and music and I think the two of them go yep. very much hand in hand and I would like to know if there's any music that reminds you of anything particularly special something you've taken with you on any of your journeys and okay, something yeah. you could share with us okay it's probably not a good or an accurate representation of my music choices <laughs> it never is and that's the fascinating thing about this question so on the north side of Everest last year we kind of had this big long climb all the way up to the north Pole, and it's camp number one it's like seven thousand meters and me and john go into our little tent it'd been snowing all day and it'd been yeah it'd been a hard day lugging everything up there um, got into a little tent it just snowed like all night but like as soon as you're in your tent and you're in your sleeping bag and the stove's on and you're cooking dinner um, things can be okay and we took up like a little stereo and attached it to our phones and we just listened to like all of these like 90s hits and the one that kind of stood out the most was like Britney Spears <laughs> hit me baby one more time blasting out at 7,000 meters on the north Col of Everest <laughs> as we were cooking our dinner in our tent <laughs> Molly Hughes thank you very much for joining us a pleasure thank you so much Molly and good luck with your next adventures Thanks to Azimuth post-production in Soho for the use of the studio and thanks to all of you for listening. Coming up in future episodes, we have some very interesting conversations for you from people from all walks of life and some very well-known people as well. We'll be giving you a new episode every Tuesday and if you want them sent directly, do subscribe and we would really appreciate it if you gave us a review on iTunes as well because that helps push us up in the ranks. Thank you very much again and see you next time on the Big Travel Podcast. 